I want to say good morning to all those of you joining us online. We're glad that you're here this morning as we begin a new teaching series in the life of our church here at MCBC. And I want to begin by asking a few pointed questions. Why is it that you exist? Nothing like starting with the easy ones, right? Why is it that you exist? What would you say to that? What What is the purpose of your life? What kind of people as a church here should we be producing? And how do we know if we're on the right track or not? The writers of the Bible spend a lot of time addressing subjects like these, the purpose of life. But it's a complex subject. It's subtle. It's obscure. I'm going to read a number of statements from the Bible. You know, the Bible has a reputation for being an ancient and sometimes difficult to understand document. I'm not really optimistic this is going to clarify anything for us, but let's give it a shot. Somebody asked Jesus one time, how is it that you live a good life? And here's his response, Matthew 22. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. When he was telling his disciples how to live, he put it like this, John 13, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. It's obscure, isn't it? It's subtle. He told them they would be recognized as his followers. What would be the the signature characteristic of these Jesus people in the world? And he put it like this, again in John 13, by this, by this one thing, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of those disciples was named John, and John later wrote this, Everyone who loves has been born from God and knows God. John also recognized how just how subtle and how hard to understand the point is. And so he said it again backwards. Whoever does not love does not know God because, and here is this profound, unprecedented idea in the world, because God is love. Another one of Jesus' disciples was Peter. Apparently, Peter saw things very differently from John because Peter wrote stuff like this. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Then on the other hand, you have a man named Paul, the Apostle Paul, controversial Paul, the man who became a follower of Jesus long after Jesus' teaching ministry and then after his death and after his resurrection. Modern skeptics make a big deal about how much of Christianity may in fact have come from the pen of Paul, not from the lips of Jesus, that Paul is responsible for Christianity. So listen to how different Paul is when he talks about this. Make love your aim, he said in 1 Corinthians 9. (laughs) Apparently he didn't get the memo about supposed to be different. He'd write things like, the goal of our instruction is love. And then he'd go on to say, and here we are really at the summit. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So listen, folks, I... I know this is a complicated question, really nuanced. Lots of great minds disagree over it. (laughs) A couple of decades ago, a philosopher, a man named Hugh Moorhead, actually wrote 250 of the best-known intellectuals in the world and asked them all that same question, what is the meaning of life? 
and he published the answers that they sent back in one collated volume. Some of them said they just they made up an answer out of thin air. Some of them said they really had no idea. Some of the most brilliant minds in the world asked him to write them back when he found out what the answer was. But based on statements like the ones we just listened to, the one unified witness of God's word is simply this. The purpose of life, do everything in love. If you had to give the Bible's answer to that question, what is the meaning of life, to give it in a single word, we could say it all out loud together and be united in this. That one word that describes the purpose of life, the four-letter archetype of our existence, is love. Life is about love. Turns out it's not subtle. It's not nuanced. And it's not rocket science. It's almost as if God is saying, listen, I, I know the human brain is, is limited, particularly the male brain, limited memory, limited capacity, narrow attention spans. I'm going to give you one word. And that one word will answer more questions and unlock more doors than you can imagine. What is it that makes the church great? What is it that the devil will hate? What should you look for in a mate? What do you hope for on a date? I'm going to feel like I read too much Dr. Seuss on my vacation. What is it that a child will await? What is it that's impossible to overrate? What drives people to procreate? What is humanity's ultimate fate? Love. Love. All you need is love. Long before the Beatles recorded it, God said it. Over and over and over again, the Bible is about love. Life is about love. The church is to be about love. Existence is about love. Spiritual maturity is measured by love. The gauge of a life well-lived is love. And so this weekend... Here we are in the heart of, of wedding season. This, this weekend we begin our study on arguably the most important topic in the world. It's life or death to me. And although our world won't tell us this, although the GTA where we live prizes achievement and advancement and success, and it won't tell us this, today we begin a study of the most influential words about love written in the history of the human race. They're 2,000 years old. They're from Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. They occupy the 13th chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter of the Bible. And I want to say a word about the context for the chapter because it matters immensely how we think about it and how we practice it. This is not a sentimental word from Scripture. This is not a hallmark view of love. First Corinthians 13 is sometimes called the love chapter because we think it's the wedding chapter. I mean, hands up, if you have heard these words, First Corinthians read at a wedding at some point in your life. I mean, that's got to be the vast majority of us. It is the most commonly known and commonly read passage of Scripture, particularly at weddings. But let's just drill a little bit into the context for what Paul writes. 
What happened was that at Corinth, I mean, the, the church in Corinth was a mess. Chapter 12 is all about conflict and people showing off and pride and arrogance and unresolved fighting in the church and quarreling. Chapter 14 is about precisely the same stuff. It's a mess. And then in the middle, sandwiched between this disaster of a church, is chapter 13. And I don't think Paul was kind of like, you know what, I really should pause and write something that can be used at wedding ceremonies in Mississauga someday. I'm just going to wedge it in here. No, this is not a wedding passage, at least not primarily. In fact, you might say that nobody needs these words less than a couple getting married on their wedding day who are deeply in love and celebrating it in that moment. This is written to messy, difficult people surrounded by messy, difficult people who've created a messy, difficult, chaotic, unpleasant church. And everybody's been following those impulses to which we we almost always default, the way of ego and self and resentment and bitterness, envy, compulsion, self-seeking. And to that audience, Paul writes these words. Let me invite you to follow along. If you have a Bible or an app, open it up. We're going to start at the very tail end of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just to catch that last verse. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. And then we're going to read the opening words from the great love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. Paul says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. And here it comes. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can even move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to the flames, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Doesn't matter how much I know, doesn't matter how much I have. Most of you know that TV game show Jeopardy. Has anybody ever watched Jeopardy? I mean, of course, everybody's watched Jeopardy at some point. There's a champion uh, over the past year. Her name is Amy Schneider. She won like six trillion dollars. She is she is wicked smart, as my kids might say. And she, like many of her brilliant predecessors, she has a huge following. The Apostle Paul says, though, you could be the smartest person in the world. You could win everything. You could have it all. And if you don't have love, you could have everything and know everything and win everything. But without love, it's nothing. In other words, if you were to write it as a mathematical formula, everything minus Love equals nothing. Or if you wanted to reverse the formula, you could say that love plus nothing still equals everything. And that's what Paul is really getting at in the opening words of this chapter. And he goes on to give love 
probably, arguably, its greatest description in all history. It's, it's filled with powerful and penetrating ideas. We're going to unpack these ideas one week at a time over the next five weekends. And I hope that you will use these words, kind of immerse yourself in them over the next month. It's a good idea, I mean, if you, if you can live with them and actually memorize them so that you can, you can kind of marinate your soul in these words. That way, next time you're stuck in a lineup at the grocery store and you don't have your phone with you, you can just, instead of being bored, lose yourself in the depth and the weightiness of these words. You can actually think these wonderful thoughts. For this, for this opening message, though, I thought I would just give... Uh, one extended example, uh, one perspective, one definition of love. And I'm going to do it through a story. Because one of the ways of understanding Scripture is it tells us one great sacred love story. The love that God has for his people. In a sense, the story of our life is wrapped up in that. And each one of those individual stories, however humble or broken or fragmented they might be, is captured up in the great loving heart of God. So I want to tell you a story. This is not meant to be a magnificent example or a comprehensive example, but I found it a very moving one. It's not mine. It's a, it's the story of a, well, it comes from the, the pen of one of the best selling authors of our day, a, an author named Mark Lukacs, who, who writes about his true story, his life, about a story that begins almost like a Hollywood romance. And then takes a dramatic turn into the pain, into the, into the suffering of mental illness and suffering love. It's raw and it's messy. And he wrote it in a book that was called My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. Again, this is not my story. The book has, I think, touched a huge number of people. It's got glowing reviews in the New York Times. He's talked about it. He, he did TED Talks. and it, It's been communicated in many, many different settings. I think it takes a lot of courage to tell a story like he does. And so I'm, I'm going to try and tell it. I'm going to tell it using his words. I'm going to tell it in the first person. Now, here are the words of Mark Lukacs, and here's his story. What I want to talk about is how my understanding of love and the behaviors associated with love have evolved over the course of my relationship with my wife, Julia. Now, I actually heard about Julia long before I met her. I'd been at college for exactly one hour, and already the guys on the floor of my residence were saying, you know, there's this girl. And she's visiting from Italy. She's here with us. She's in our year. And, and I was like, ooh. And already I thought I was a little bit in love with her. And then when I met her a few days later, I was incredibly intimidated. And I thought, I'm never going to have the courage to talk to her in person. I'm, I'm just going to have to sort of crush on her from afar. But I decided I would take a page out of Hollywood, a page out of an Italian movie called Life is Beautiful. La Vita e Bella. Some of you have seen it. And in the movie, this guy, in order to charm his love interest, whenever he sees her, always cries out, Buongiorno, principessa, which means, 
Good morning, princess. And so I thought that's what I'm going to do. Whenever I saw Julia on campus, no matter how inappropriate the context, I yelled out to her, Buongiorno, principessa. Fortunately, she smiled back in return. We met at a party after about a month. We hit it off. We started dating. And then by the first winter break, we were already talking about where we might live after college and how many kids we'd love to have. We got married two years after graduating, married in the Catholic Church. And in that church, they write your vows for you. And so on the night before, I actually wrote a letter, my own letter to Julia, because I wanted to tell her how I wanted our marriage to be, what love meant to me, and how I was going to show love to her. And basically what I said was this. Look, let's be honest. There are lots of boring moments in life. You have to wait in line at the bank. You have to do the dishes. My promise to you is to try to make those moments as fun as they can possibly be. I want our life together to be joyful, which is kind of ridiculously naive, right? First off, nobody goes to banks anymore. We have phones and apps for that. But more importantly, my definition of the behavior of love was centered on fun and on joy. And I still believe that those are criteria of love, but they're not the be-all or the end-all. That was my promise when I was 23 years old, and I had no idea what I was talking about. The day after we got married, we got on a plane, we moved to California, because, hey, what's more fun than that? Things were going wonderfully. But after living out there for three years, Julia started a new job. Now, Julia had a near-perfect GPA since she was born. She had glowing job reviews all the time. And she came home from the first day of her new job. I asked her how work went, and she had this long pause, and she just sort of said, yeah, it was good. Um, It was a a good day. I'd never seen her naive or insecure around work before, and that pause, that insecurity, that grew rapidly into something that completely upended our lives. It started with her not being able to get simple tasks done at work, like writing emails. She would just sort of stare at her computer all day long. And then at home, she wasn't interested in eating. I'd make the meals, and she would just kind of poke at them and not actually eat anything. It was difficult for her to fall asleep at night. Eventually, she just stopped sleeping altogether because she couldn't. Her mind was racing all the time with worry. And one morning, about six weeks after that that first day of work, she woke up and she was pacing the room. She hadn't slept a wink. And then she said, I talked to God last night, Mark. Which is kind of out of character for her to say something like that. We were raised religious, but for for her actually to feel like she'd had a conversation, it had me a little worried, but at least there was a positive message. She said, I talked to God last night. God told me everything was going to be okay. I don't have to worry. It's all going to go away soon. A few days later, I woke up again, and she was pacing. She said, I talked to the devil last night, and the devil said, it's not going to be okay, that I'm not worth helping or saving, so you just need to let me go. Let me be gone. And in a panic, in those moments, I took her to the emergency room, and I started to act out a second type of love, which is the kind of protective, papa bear, smothering love, the hug and fight for the life of the people that you love and care about, who are sick and need our help. I visited her every single visiting hour that was available. I called the hospital almost every hour to get updates. I researched constantly. 
She ended up being admitted for 23 days, which is a pretty long time to be held involuntarily in a psychiatric facility. I said she was psychotic. I didn't really know what that meant at the time. Basically, it means that you're experiencing delusions. You're paranoid. Sometimes she was happy to see me. Sometimes she was terrified to see me. After 23 days, they sent her home. At this point, she was pretty heavily medicated, and although she was no longer psychotic, she was now deeply, deeply depressed and talking almost exclusively about suicide. And I just kept giving her that big bear hug. And I committed this idea to to her and to myself that we're going to make our days as fulfilling as possible. I took large amounts of time off work. I signed us up for yoga and art classes, and we walked the dog. And any time she would tell me how scared or how sad she was, I was like a fire extinguisher. I was like, you don't have to worry about this. We have a beautiful life together. Principessa, la vita e bella. Life is beautiful. It's all going to come back. Don't worry about it. But she became so meticulous and so constant in her thinking about suicide and ending her own life that one day she asked me, said, Mark, I, I don't quite know what to do with the Vespa key. And I was like, what are you talking about? We had a little Vespa. We used it to get around the city. She said, when I take the Vespa to the Golden Gate Bridge to jump off, I don't know what to do with the key. Because we only have the one key, and if I bring it with me, you may not find my body, and then you'll lose the scooter. And I don't want you to lose the scooter, Mark. Just think about that. person you want to spend the rest of your life with not knowing what to do with a scooter key when they end their life. I wrapped her in that big bear hug again. No, honey, you're not going to the bridge. It's going to be okay. And then I had an epiphany. And honestly, the epiphany was brought on more by sheer exhaustion about what I'd tried to accomplish than it was a deep insight into how I was meant to love another person. This maybe was the 50th time that Julia had brought up how she wanted to end her life, and I was so exhausted by trying to convince her not to that I just sat there and I listened to her. I listened to her pain. I didn't tell her not to be scared. I didn't tell her not to be sad. I just let all those feelings wash out of her, and I heard her. I was with her, and so I knew that she was safe. I knew that she couldn't actually do anything. And I learned that one of the most demanding and ultimately one of the most important acts of love that we can do for each other is just to listen. It's so hard. And I'm guessing a lot of you are problem solvers, right? You, you want a nine-point plan. How do you fix something? But sometimes you have to throw the plan out. And you just sit with the person. You're just present with them. And you hear them. And you take it in. And after that conversation, it was the first time that Juliet had talked about suicide when she said she felt a little bit better after we'd talked. To kind of wrap up where we are today, Julia was sick for about a year. She was psychotic for about a month. She was suicidal and depressed for about 10 more months. The illness took a whole year away from us. And then just as quickly as she got sick, she got well again. They found the right medication. All of a sudden, the Julia that I knew was back. 
And we thought, great, let's get back to the life we'd always wanted. Let's get back to work. Let's get back to fun. Let's have children together. And we did. And we had a little boy. Unfortunately, when Jonas was five months old, when Julia returned from maternity leave, she lasted at work only two weeks. And then she was back in the hospital with a second psychotic episode. At times, she was hospitalized for 33 days. And then two years later, when Jonas was two and a half years old, she had her third episode. And now we know that as a family, this is just part of our lives forever. Julia has been diagnosed with a bipolar disorder, a chronic condition. It means that we always have to recognize that, that this might come back in our lives. But I have to say this, and I say it with complete confidence. We are not as afraid as we used to be. And I think the reason that we're not afraid is not because we've come to some deep insight about how to cure the condition. It's because we have broadened our understanding about what love is and about how, how love will get us through. Our most recent episode was about four and a half years ago. We, we feel in many ways like this illness, though it could still come back, is at least somewhat under control. And I often sit here feeling such gratitude, thinking, why? Why is it that for me this mental illness story ends in a way that can be manageable and joyful? Because there's lots of stories that don't end that way. I still don't know what the next 10 or 15 or 20 years may hold. But I do know that, that I get to be the guy who sits here and talks to you, knowing that at least for now, we've made it through. And what is it that allowed us to do so? It's that little four-letter word, the word love. Because I think that we as a family have grown in our understanding of just how much that means. And how vast and all-encompassing it is. And how precious and how vital it will always be. That's the end of Mark's story. Not the end of ours, of course. Everybody fights a battle. Often it's a battle that you don't see. Everybody does. There will be people who are joining us today, watching us online, or well, you're watching online. Many of us will be meeting in person, sitting out on the front lawn. And you know what this is about. You know what this is like, depression or anxiety or OCD, and it's killing you. Some addiction or autism or dementia or deep, deep shame. It's important that you're here today, that you're watching today. Part of what we are committed to is the church of God's people is destigmatizing issues around emotional and mental health. We want to be a place that is open around these things where where fellowship of God's people and medication and therapy and prayer, all of God's gifts get embraced. We want to be a church that is about love, but love in practice, not love in preaching. Part of what struck me as I read Mark's story is that love is so powerful in that it can suffer so deeply. Nothing suffers like love does. It's part of what we need to talk about in the series. 
Love doesn't always paint the story the way that we want, but the Bible tells us that we are in the midst of a greater story where love one day will redeem all suffering and even death. And what's at the very heart of the story is the love that God has for the world. The most famous verse in the most famous book ever written has that embedded right there at the summit. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That pain, that pain that we see in a psych ward or in a hospital bed are finally and ultimately summed up in a cross because of that somehow when pain and suffering get shared and reconciling love, they become redemptive and they heal and they touch us in ways that have staggering beauty. Folks, I'm asking for everyone who is a part of this church family, at whatever level, in whatever capacity, to think seriously about what it would mean to make this the primary aim of your life. Maybe think of the next five weeks in the life of our church as a kind of booster shot where we ask God, God, would you help me, help us to become a more loving person? Help us to be a place that is marked by love made tangible, by love in action, in a world where too often the people of Christ, the church of Christ, are associated with a rhetoric of hate and division and marginalization. We will be known, as Jesus asked his people to be known, by our love. And it's not just enough to talk about it. And I realize that's all I'm doing here today about the beauty of love, or to listen to stories. But there comes a part, a time when you just roll up your sleeves and you work on it. There's a role for us to play here. We ask for God's help, but then we have to do something. Where do we start? Jesus said, love your enemies. One of the famous love statements in the Bible. Start with the, the most difficult the unlovable, the hard to be around, the obnoxious person in your life. Maybe they're sitting right there next to you right now. Put your arm... No, don't do that. Don't do that. Actually, loving enemies is kind of like the graduate level course in love. We work our way up to that, and maybe you feel like you can't start there. So let's start somewhere else. Jesus' friend, his close friend John, was called the beloved disciple. He was so overwhelmed by the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, God's divine presence on earth, that Jesus loved him. That he goes on to write about this subject, about love, more than anybody else. Everybody in the Bible talks about love, but John talks about it the most. And this was his foundational discovery. John says, you know what? I think we love Because he first loved us. I mean, it's amazing to think that 2,000 years ago, in an ancient world that we often think of as stiff or barbaric or cold, that Jesus would say to his friend John, he said, John, you know what? I love you. Hey, John, you're my friend. It brings me joy to see you. It brings me delight when we're together. John, I love you. I wonder sometimes how John must have responded. Did he ever look away? Did he get embarrassed? Did he get giddy about it? It's a strange thing. It can be hard just to sit there and accept and receive love. 
There's a wonderful Scottish Christian writer from about a century ago. His name was George MacDonald. And he loved to write love stories. He was a Christian writer. But he loved to write fictional love stories and usually involved princes and princesses. And somebody asked, hey, why do you always write about these princes and princesses? And he said, well, you know what? It's because a prince and a princess, they are a child of the king. And that's the story of all of us. Bongiorno, principessa. You are a son or a daughter of the king. Greetings, prince. Greetings, princess. You're a child of the king. Your heavenly father looks down on heaven with delight as you go through your day. And maybe from time to time through your day, you just want to pause and say, God, thanks. Thanks for loving me like that. I know I'm inadequate. I know some days I'm a mess. Thanks for loving me. And as we receive that, Paul says the most excellent way. I love that description. The most excellent way of living. What's life really about? Here's the most excellent way. is simply to aim what we have received at other people. It's simple when you think about it. You don't need education. You don't need money. You don't need a strong resume or a title. doesn't matter. The possibility still lies in front of you. This is what life looks like in the kingdom of God. This is the most excellent way of the kingdom. People go through life, we get all torn up over, I wanted to do this, I wanted to achieve that, I never met my goals, my dreams never came true, I wanted to climb here, and I couldn't make it. Love is available to you. You can receive it, and you can redirect it. So here's a really simple way you can do that. Get out a piece of paper, wherever you are at home. Maybe you want to do it on your cell phone or your computer if you want to. Something that that I'm working on this week. I want you to write down one positive characteristic about yourself. This is going to be one of the ways that you learn to be grateful to God for the love that he's invested in your life. One characteristic about yourself. Something positive. And then I want you to write down one positive characteristic about another person. Write them both down. could be their, I don't know, their helpful attitude their sense of humor, how smart they are, how much you like to be around them. could be anything. And then the next time that you're with them, I want you to look them right in the eye. Really, really notice them. Focus on them. Don't look down at your phone as we're so inclined to do when we're together. Just look at their face. Be attuned to their body language. And tell them what it is that you wrote down that you love about them. And then notice the response. Watch as their eyes brighten. Maybe they blush a little bit and have to look away. Watch as their, as their shoulders straighten, as their, as their posture begins to elevate. It'll be so much fun that you'll want to do it again, and I hope that you will. And I encourage you to do that. To start this week and don't end. Because if you wait, when we wait, we we end up being one of two kind of people in the world. I mean, let's be clear about that. Often when we think about heaven and hell, we think primarily about a location and the future. Someplace we will arrive at some unknown day off in the distant future. And, And we imagine what the conditions will be like. But the primary reality about the idea of an eternal life 
is not so much location as it is transformation. What kind of person will you become? Imagine two people. One person, an outrageous giver and receiver of love. Person who just made people feel cared for and welcome. She listened. I mean, she really listened. At work, people would seek out her cubicle when they celebrated or when they won or when they mourn and when they lost or when they needed help or they were confused. At home, she was the real deal. When she was wrong, she wouldn't be defensive about it. She'd just confess and apologize. When she was hurt, she'd forgive. She didn't hold on to grudges. She had a kind of a knack for serving and helping. And she could confront you with real honesty, but still stay connected with you. Other than that, by worldly standards, she didn't have much of a life. She never had much money. Lived in a little wee place. Had a short little resume, wasn't famous at all. She just had this deep, abiding, life-changing, joy-producing, other-centered, God-rooted, hope-producing, life-giving love. Then think about this other person, thoroughly unloving, well-known for being a complete jerk at work. Always looked out for number one. He was always reflexively self-promoting. Prided himself on the way that he would always get even with anyone who had hurt him. All his spouses became his exes. His children were embittered. His colleagues felt betrayed. His friends were deceived. He was selfish, arrogant, isolated, hidden, materialistic, narcissistic, egomaniacal. Other than that, he had a great life. Outside of utterly flunking love, he was brilliant at all the other stuff. Well, which would you choose? Jesus would say, choose love. His friend John, the beloved disciple, would say, choose love. The great apostle Paul, in all the brilliance, the gifted mind that God had endowed in him, would say, you know what, choose love. Mary, the mother of Jesus, would say, choose love. The reason that we're here, it's not about buildings or programs. It's not about getting people to recite the right words. And I believe this to my core. Nobody who succeeds at love fails at life. And nobody who fails at love succeeds at life. This is just the reality of what the kingdom of God looks like in our midst. So, hey, let's get after it. I mean, every day over these next five weeks, I encourage you not to miss one. Engage. Go online if you're traveling. I I watched all five of the services that you had while while I was on vacation. You had some wonderful services. Ken, John, uh, Sheldon, Nathan, and all those who shared testimony. What a gift to be under your leadership. But if you're away, go online. Check in. Keep up. Do it with your small group. Get stuff online. What What matters most is love and And we want to be the people who are known most for that. Hey, will you join me as we pray together? Let's pray. Maybe you're sitting next to somebody who who really does need a touch of love. And if you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to just take their hand or put your hand on their back, let them know that they are a child of the King. doesn't matter how inadequate or messed up they might feel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you 
that you come to us in a fresh way each morning. That we wake up and we hear you whispering, Buongiorno, Principessa. Good morning, Princess. Good morning, Prince. You're a child of the King. I pray especially for everybody who who this morning has a breaking or a suffering heart. I pray for people who desperately want to be loved and feel so alone. There are people who want so much to give love and feel rejected. And I pray, God, that by some miracle you would make the reality of your love for us so powerful that nobody would walk out of their room today without knowing that they are loved by you. And I pray that you would grow us up as a church together in this. We pray it together in Christ's name. Amen.